0: I invite you at this time to join me in your Pew Bibles on page forty-three, where we find our scripture reading this morning. Genesis chapter twenty seven, verse forty-one through chapter twenty eight, verse nine. Genesis chapter twenty seven verse forty-one through twenty-eight verse nine. Hear now the reading of God's wholly inspired and infallible word. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say at once to my brother Laban and Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him. Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your brother, your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padan Aram, To Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to on Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to on Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahaloth, the sister of Nabaioth, and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives He already had. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. I don't know if any of you remember the movie Ordinary People. That came out in 1980. Believe it or not, that's over 40 years ago. I have not watched it, but um, I find the title striking when I read the synopsis of the movie. It says Tormented by guilt following the death of his older brother, Buck, in a sailing accident, alienated teenager Conrad attempts suicide. Returning home following an extended stay in a psychiatric hospital, Conrad tries to deal with his mental anguish and also reconnect with his mother, Beth, who's grown cold and angry, and his emotionally wounded father, Calvin with the help of his psychiatrist, Dr. Berger. Ordinary people. That's, um, that's the understanding there, is that this is what ordinary people deal with. They go through trauma. They experience hardship and difficulty. They attempt suicide. They have interpersonal uh, turmoil and, and family uh, tension, Right? And maybe some of you are saying, well, you know, that really isn't my experience, that really isn't the way that I grew up, you know, that, that really isn't um, how I uh, experienced life, you know. Um, my, my upbringing was a lot different than that family's upbringing. Um, but maybe some of you are saying, I relate to that. Maybe not to that degree, but I relate to that turmoil and the tension and the difficulty. Um, what they call dysfunctional. Well, I, I'm here to tell you that when you read or when you watch about ordinary people that has a family like that that's so broken and dysfunctional that you should relate to it because we're all dysfunctional because of sin. We're all broken. Um, even the best of families deal with uh, with sin and the turmoil of it and the heartache that it causes and the hurt feelings and the apologies required. And so I think it's very important for us to maybe have a life lesson looking at this dysfunctional family, Isaac and Rebecca, and the Bible, and maybe pulling some lessons from that. And one of the most important lessons, and I think it is the most important lesson that we can take from this, um, is that throughout all, all of Isaac and Rebecca's family's failures and shortcomings, and all the ways that they fall short, and all the ways that they are broken, and all the ways that they show favoritism to their children, and all the ways that they sow dissent because well, they're trying to uh, uh, deceive, and, 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 and all these things... We learn this: that God takes ordinary families and uses them to do extraordinary things for His kingdom. God takes ordinary families and uses them to do extraordinary things for His kingdom. And hopefully, by the time we're done looking at this passage, you'll see uh, what I mean. Okay, uh, but we have a, a, a few uh, lessons that we can draw. From this passage and this dysfunctional family. Uh, The first is the false comfort of revenge. And we see that through Esau's eyes. Um, Where does that lead us? And what does that bring us in the end? Um, The second is the price of deception. You know, it may be true that uh, Jacob was um, told, prophesied by God to be the one who would receive the blessing, to be the one whom the older would serve. Um, But the way that they pursued that, was in a way that was sinful, as a way that was full of deceit. And there's a cost to sin in this life. There's a cost, a consequence to those kinds of decisions. And we see some of that. And the third lesson that we we can look at is the importance of marrying in the Lord. The importance of marrying in the Lord. All right, so let's look at those points. The first is the false comfort of revenge. And as we go along too, I might point out some other things, but these are the three main ones that I want to to look at, okay? Uh, So this is what um, the beginning of our passage says. Esau held the grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. That is, once my dad dies, I'm going to kill my brother. I don't want to do it while he's alive, but I'm going to do it when he's dead, okay? The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Um, and then when Rebekah comes to uh, Jacob, he says to Jacob, your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you. Um, the word there is, is comfort. He's comforting himself uh, with the thought of killing you. And, and, and in, in verse 41, Esau held a grudge. Well, maybe even a stronger word that could be used there, based, based on the Hebrew, would be Esau hated Jacob. Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. You see, one of the most sad stories of the Bible is what happens to Esau. Esau is a hungry man who sells his um, birthright for A bowl of stew. Esau is the older son who should deserve the double portion of blessing, um, but he instead receives the curse. And he pleads with his father, is there no blessing left for me? Is there no blessing left for me? Please let there be a blessing for me. The scriptures tell us that, that Esau is meant to be for us a warning about waiting too late to enter into the blessing that the Lord has for us. Nonetheless, Esau provides for us another lesson here, and that is the false comfort of revenge. Esau believes that something that will make him feel better about his life's circumstances, something that will make him feel like he has righted the wrongs that he has experienced at the hand of his very own brother and his very own mother, is if he takes justice into his own hands and murders Jacob. And so he comforts himself with this thought. He consoles himself with this thought of revenge. But what Esau doesn't realize is that because Jacob is the one who has received the blessing, because Jacob is the chosen seed that will carry on the seed that will become the Messiah, Esau is not hating Jacob. Esau is hating God. Esau is hating God. Nonetheless, we can relate to this very real experience that Esau is having. Somebody has wronged him. And he wants revenge. And he is comforting himself with this revenge. In fact, how many movies have you watched where the soul Motivation of the protagonist in the movie is revenge. And one of my favorite ones is this. My name is Inigo Montoya. You kill my father. Prepare to die. The Six-fingered man, right? We love that scene in The Princess Bride. We go, oh, yes, that's the moment we've been waiting for. He finally gets the guy that killed his dad. And we don't realize that it costs him his own life. Because that's the cost of revenge. Revenge is a bitter seed that turns into a bitter root. You cannot hold a grudge without it affecting you without it bringing death into your life. So what does God say? Well, Paul, instructing the church in Rome about this very thing, knowing that they might be those who are at the receiving end of injustices by people who are persecuting them and mistreating them, says, this is what you're to do. You're not to take justice into your own hands. You are to trust and to know that vengeance is the Lord's. He will make all things right in due time. Do you want to know why Do you want to know why court decisions today cause riots in New York City and Chicago and Wisconsin? Because people don't believe that God is the God of justice and that one day there will be a reckoning. They believe they have to take things into their own hands, even if they have all kinds of misinformation. They think that they got to make things right so they burn down buildings and destroy cars and hurt people and yell at policemen. That's why they do that. Because they are believing in the false comfort of revenge, of outrage. Not knowing that that will cost them their life. Esau hated his brother. But in the end, he realized he was hating God. He was going against God, and you don't win against God. You don't win against God. Don't hold on to the false comfort of revenge. And here's the key reason why Christians are not supposed to be those who celebrate revenge because the vengeance we deserved. Christ got instead. So, how can we hold wrath against someone else knowing that if we got what we deserved, it wouldn't be grace? Let's move on to the price of deception, okay? So, Rebecca hears about what her older son is planning. By the way, it seems like Rebecca has ears everywhere. She's listening all the time. She's like every mother, you know. She knows what's going on in her house. Um, But, anyways, she says, Your brother Esau is consoling himself with the thought of killing you, and this is her plan. She says, Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban and Haran, stay with him a while until your brother's fury subsides. And when your brother's no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. And she says, my worry is that I would lose both of you in one day. I would lose both of my sons in one day because you would, in anger, kill each other. And so this is what Rebecca does. She wants Isaac to give a blessing to Jacob to do this. And she knows already that uh, one of the hard things that's going on in her and Isaac's life is that their son Esau has married Hittite women, Canaanite women in the land. And these women are causing problems and and issues and difficulties in their family. I'm not certain what those are. But primarily, I would think it's worshiping something other than Yahweh, the true God. Okay? Um, And so, uh, Rebekah says, listen, we don't want Jacob to marry one of the same women that Esau married. So, um, why don't we send him back to, uh my brother, just like you, uh, you sent for me, um, your, your dad sent for me, let's send Jacob to, uh, to go uh, search for a wife amongst uh, our relatives. So that's what, uh, that's what she does. She, she tells Isaac this, and Isaac can, is convinced that this is what should happen. And so Isaac uh, brings Jacob to him, and he, he says, listen, I don't want you to marry a Canaanite woman. And this is what he says, go to Potanaram. Take a wife for yourself from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And this is what Isaac does after that. Um, be, be, remember, we talked about last week that Isaac was attempting to uh, pursue his own will in contradiction to God's will. He thought, I know that the God said the older will serve the younger, but I want to, in secret, give a blessing to my son Esau because he's my favorite. I love him, okay? And so uh, the trickery, the, the deception made it so that Jacob received the blessing. And then this was, sort of was a conversion moment for Isaac. He realized, wow, God's will will be done, right? Um, he will be blessed. But Isaac takes that another step forward. He says, Not only do I acknowledge that even, in a, if, even when I attempt to pursue my own will in contradiction to God's will, God's will will be accomplished. Now, of my own active desire, now in my own knowledge, without deception, I am going to bestow a blessing upon Jacob. Okay? That's a real expression of repentance. It's the fruits of repentance. And this is what he says May he make you fruitful increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you're now living as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. And so Isaac bestows upon Jacob the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham. And he sent Jacob on his way to Padanaram to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. So what is the price of deception. There's a couple of prices that are paid for this decision that Rebecca and Jacob put in together to do. And one of them is that Rebecca loses her favorite son. Rebecca loses her favorite son. There is a consequence. There is a price for sin. And this is one that she pays for what she did. You get the sense that when Rebecca talks to Jacob, she's uh, thinking that this will just be a short period of time, and then I'll send word for you, and then you'll come back, okay? Um, but actually, what ends up happening is that Jacob spends 20 years in Paddan with Laban. And based on what we know in the Genesis account, Rebecca never sees her son again. She dies before he returns. She dies. And so she loses what's most precious to her. Her worry was that she would lose both of her sons in one day. And what she does, in fact, do is never see her son again. She pays a price, a consequence of sin. There's always a price to pay. When it comes to sin, because of Christ, often these prices that we pay are consequences that we experience in this life, uh, but they're not eternal because He has taken the punishment. But when we pursue sin, what we're doing is we're, coi- we're going against the way God's world operates. Just like I talked about in the reading of the law there is blessing and there is curse, there is life and there is death. And when we enter into sin, when we participate in sin, we are entering into what is broken about this world. We are entering into the curse. We are entering into death and to curse. And even though God has forgiven us, ultimately, because we're pursuing things that go against the way God's world is meant to operate, we experience consequences. We experience consequences. And one consequence that Rebecca experiences is the loss of her son. Jacob experiences a consequence as well. Uh, Many of you know the story, and I'm sure we're going to get to it later on as we continue our study in Genesis. But um, Jacob, he goes to uh, Laban, and he falls in love uh, with one of Laban's beautiful daughters, Rachel. Rachel. And Jacob says, may I please have her as my wife? And and Laban, he is a a sly businessman, so he says, sure, yeah, but you have to work for me for seven years. And so Jacob works for him for seven years, and it's all worth it because he's going to have, Rachel as his wife, he's going to have this beautiful woman. And then on the night of their wedding, Jacob drinks a little bit too much. And Laban says, Leah, go in there. And then Jacob wakes up to quite a surprise. You're not Rachel. And Laban says, yeah, you can have Rachel. You just have to work seven more years. And so the deceiver gets deceived. Now, I don't believe in karma, but what goes around comes around. That is a principle in this life that God has built into this world. You reap what you sow. You sow deception, you reap deception. Reap the whirlwind. Jacob is a deceiver. Jacob is someone who is tricky, and he got tricked. He spent 14 years of his life because of that deception. There's a price to be paid. And that is a price that Jacob paid. That he was one who deceived and so deception came into his life. He was one who received deception. At the receiving end of deception. And let that be a lesson to us. That in our lives, in our families, lives, in our dysfunctional family lives, the things that we choose to do, the way that we choose to act, the things that we choose to say. They often have consequences. And these are things we have to reckon with. And lastly, we have here the importance of marrying in the Lord. Now, it's a a bit um, difficult to... um, explain this principle, but I'm going to try to do it as best as I can. In the Old Testament, this is often expressed to us in forms of ethnic barriers. And this is because um, God's blessing to Abraham is based upon uh, a descendant of his that's going to be the seed, singular, that's going to be the blessing to all the nations of this world. And so in order for that see Jesus Christ to come into this world in order for us to have those beautiful genealogies in Matthew and Luke, the Christmas genealogies that we love to read so much, don't we? In order to have those, we have to have an unbroken line of secession in the family of Abraham going to the promised Messiah Jesus. And so then even here in Genesis, we see the importance placed upon you shall not marry Canaanite women. You shall not marry uh, foreign women. and uh, You have to remain pure. You have to remain uh, ethnically bound. And so, um, um, and so Abraham sends his servant off to get a, a wife uh, for Isaac from his uh, family. And then Isaac sends his son Jacob off to get a wife for him from his family. And so on and so forth until we see in the promised land that God once again makes these barriers, makes these things important. Your your reception and your uh, passing down of the land that you've inherited is dependent upon this this line of succession, this line of purity where where God says, don't intermarry, don't intermarry with Canaanite women, don't intermarry with the women of the land. And part of that is an ethical reason. They are going to turn you away. They're going to make you worship other gods. Um, But part of that also is to point to this reality that through the promised people of Israel is going to come one who's going to be the Savior of all the world. Now when Jesus comes and he dies on the cross for our sins and is resurrected three days later and the sins are said at the right hand of God the Father, that dividing wall of hostility is broken down, right? So no longer are we, say, we're, we told you can't marry that person because of their ethnic background. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's okay to marry people who aren't Dutch. All right? it's It's not wrong. I'm not saying it's bad to do it. I'm just saying it's not wrong. It's okay to marry interracially. That is not what is being spoken of anymore. The one emphasis that continues on into the New Testament about marriage that carries on this tradition that's here in Scripture, in Genesis, as the Paul says, you are to marry in the Lord. You're to marry in the Lord. It's important that as Christian families who raise Christian children, that we install into our children's hearts and minds how important it is For them to marry a fellow Christian. And this is something that Paul calls us to do for ethical reasons. Now, there's all kinds of caveats that could be made about this. For instance, what happens if you become a Christian while you're married? There's nothing wrong with being married to somebody who's not a Christian if you become converted later on in your life. What happens if you get married as Christians and then one of you decides they don't want to be a Christian anymore? There's nothing wrong with being married to somebody who later in life decides to not be a Christian. Does it come with challenges? Does it come with difficulties? Absolutely, yeah. But that's marriage. Choosing to continue to work through things even when they aren't easy. There's another caveat. Does that mean you have to marry? No, it just means if you marry and you're a Christian, you should marry in the Lord. You should marry in the Lord. And Esau, he learned this too late. And his attempt to correct was not a good attempt. He is struggling so hard to be pleasing to his parents that he's failing. He's already married two Hittite women. Once again, um, obviously, um, polygamy is something that is apparent in Genesis even. uh, This is something that happens. This is something that was common culturally speaking. But from Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, we know that it's always been God's plan to have marriage be one man and one woman. And so Esau deviates from that. And so he then decides, well, maybe if, um, if it's so important to not marry the Canaanite women, uh, women, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to just get another wife and it's going to be from Ishmael. Because there's relation there. But Ishmael is not the chosen seed. We are... Instructed as Christians to marry if we're going to marry in the Lord. And Esau does not do that. Another sign of dysfunction in the family. It's true um, that what we look at here this morning is a family full of brokenness, full of hurt, a family full of tensions. I, I imagine that as we're, comp- uh, as we're preparing ourselves to gather for a Thanksgiving meal, that th- their Thanksgiving meal was quite a show. Maybe they had a, maybe they had one of those weird policies that uh, all right, we're going to gather together as a family, but no talking about religion and politics. And I was always the person who said, "What else is there to talk about?" <laughs> That's the fun stuff. (laughs) So we'll stick to the safe stuff, right? Football and I don't know. But yeah, they're dysfunctional. They're dysfunctional. They're broken in all kinds of ways. Just like my family. Just like yours. I don't know about you, but probably the most comforting thing to me about this passage this morning. Um, as I got up this morning, dealt with two um, crying babies while trying to make waffles for the um, um, potluck later today, um, feeding them in car seats so that my wife, Caris could get ready, um, Realizing I don't have time to shower, so I'm just going to wash my face and put some dry shampoo in. That's, a, that's something my wife taught me how to do. Rushing over here to find out that the Mevo camera isn't working. My son's been trying to get it to work. Um, that I didn't plug my iPad into the charger, and so it's 10% battery, and I hope I'm going to make it uh, to the end of this sermon before it dies. Um, realizing that this week was a, a week of challenges where I miss my other kids because we're dealing with these newborns and, and, and there's tensions and, and there's love, but there's also frustration and, and, and hurt and, and, I, and I wish that I could get some more sleep. That when all that is going on, And sometimes I wonder if God is really at work in my family's lives. Then I look at Isaac and Rebecca's family and see how messed up they are. And realize that God still brought the promised Messiah through these dysfunctional people. That there's hope for me. That there's hope for my family. That all the things that we're going through right now. And all the many, 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 many diapers that are being changed that there's something extraordinary going on in the midst of all the ordinary. That you know from the Bible that God takes ordinary families with all of their hiccups and their mess ups and their bumps and their bruises and their imperfections and if we let them if we look and we see we'll notice that he uses us to do extraordinary things for his kingdom because extraordinary is found in all the little all the little expressions of faithfulness in prayer extraordinary is found in all of the moments of repentance and asking to be forgiven when you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. So people of God, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. Because God uses ordinary families like Mary and Joseph We're just some podunk people from Nazareth that nobody cared about, nobody knew to bring our Savior Jesus Christ into this world. God uses ordinary families to do extraordinary things for his kingdom and he's using you to do extraordinary things. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time together in your word. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that this word would bless us and give us grace and mercy to face the day ahead. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would know that you're at work in our lives and our families uh, for your sake and for your glory and for our good. Through all the ups and downs, Lord, you are doing extraordinary through the ordinary. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we would let Christ be at the center of our families, heal our wounds, help us to forgive one another, and help us to love, to fill our lives and our families with humility and concern for others instead of selfishness. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand and sing? See-